be seated. Our scripture reading this morning is the 14th chapter from Romans, reading from the English Standard Version. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over disputable matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and improved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble 
by what he eats. It is not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. First, a word of explanation. If you are a visitor with us this morning, and this might seem like an odd and long scripture reading for Confirmation Sunday, it is our habit here at Kish um, to simply preach through books of the Bible, which means that rather than me sitting down and figuring out what text we're going to preach on on a given Sunday, Jesus um, effectively just tells me that this is what we're going to preach on. And sometimes I'm like, that fits so well. And sometimes I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, And I'll leave it to you to determine what you think of that. But um, as we come to meet with the Lord in his word and hear what he has for us today, uh, let's pray. God and Father, I thank you that you are a God that speaks to us, that does not stay silent and distant, but reveals yourself to us. And I pray now as we grapple with your word that you would be at work in us, that you would be with us sinners as we sit under its preaching and that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have a lot of ground to cover in this text, so we're going to jump on in. Our text for this morning from Romans 14 is long, but we are working through it together because it really all fits together as a whole. In this text, Paul addresses a number of different issues, um, and some of them might seem strange to us as modern readers, But what unites them is that they are all in the church in Rome that Paul is writing to what I would call disputable matters, all right? Disputable matters, things that Christians disagree about. First, before we dive into what Paul says about it, let's get a sense of what these disputable matters were in Rome. It seems like there's three main debates that he's writing to address. First, one that has to do with meat, eating meat, and probably meat sacrificed to idols. For this to make sense, um, we need to understand that in ancient Rome, much of the meat that you bought at a marketplace was actually meat that had been sacrificed in temples to the gods. Uh, Temples in Rome kind of functioned like butcher shops, and that's probably then what lies behind the argument in Romans about whether or not Christians should be vegetarians, which you might have noticed, for example, in verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And it's not a modern form of vegetarianism for health or ethics or whatever, but this was about some in the early church refusing to eat meat because they were uncomfortable with the fact that it had been sacrificed at these temples, and they felt like it was tainted with the worship of idols. And others said that it was fine. Um, It's worth noting that in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses this same kind of debate that's happening in that church too. So apparently it's a hot-button issue. The second debate is about recognizing certain holy days. So verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Probably this is a difference in the early church between Jews and Gentiles who both make up this big, a big chunk of the church in Rome. There were Jewish believers who wanted to still celebrate these Jewish festivals and Gentile believers who didn't. And so they were arguing about whether or not they should celebrate them. And then there's a debate over clean and unclean food that we also see in the final verses. And that's probably not talking about eating meat anymore, but about these Jewish dietary restrictions that Jewish believers followed and Gentile believers didn't, and they were arguing with each other about what they should do. Um, and here's what unites those debates, okay? Even though they're not the debates that we have in our world, they are what Paul terms opinions, your translation might have said, or disputable matters. Which is not to say that there isn't a right answer on these debates, interestingly. Paul actually offers his opinion on which side is correct on these matters, um, but none of these things are essential for serving Jesus, and people on both sides are doing what they're doing because they're trying to follow Jesus. So, for example, in verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Let me try to frame this a little differently in our modern world, okay? I have used this here before at Kish. We actually use this in our new members class. But in Christianity, there are three levels of beliefs, okay? At the center is what I'm calling the creed, kind of because it's like things in the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed that we recite sometimes here. But these are the beliefs that just make Christianity Christianity. Jesus is God, and he died for sins and rose from the dead, and, you know, God's word has authority over our lives, stuff like that. Those are the things that, if you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. And then second circle is what I call confession, because for us here, it's what we find in the Westminster Confession. But that is to say that particular churches have certain convictions that they also kind of need to work through just to function together as a church. Like, how do you understand how the church is supposed to be run? Um, should, who should be baptized? How do we think about the basic ways the Bible fits together? And you can be a Christian and disagree about those things, but it's very hard to do church together if you disagree about them. So, like, some Christians think that there is one elder in charge of the church, and it's the pastor, and other Christians, like us, think that there is a body of elders together that are in charge of the church, and if half the church thinks one thing and half the church thinks the other, it's very hard to just function as a church. So there's that second circle, and then the third circle is what I am there calling conscience, matters of conscience, or what we're calling this morning disputable matters, which are things that we as Christians within local churches can and will disagree about. What are those issues in our day? I think you could make a really long list, and it varies from church to church. But things like, for example, parenting, family, education, all that touchy stuff about our kids, right? Discipline. Or, or how do you dress on Sunday mornings? Or what are our cultural expectations surrounding certain behaviors? Or... Um, can Christians drink out alcohol in moderation? Or how should we vote? Or what kind of movies and music should we watch and listen to? All of that stuff. Now, by calling those things disputable matters, I am not saying that the Bible doesn't address them. The Bible does speak to all of them. The, spi the Bible speaks to all issue, to issues in all three of those circles, honestly. Um, and that's true in Paul's day, too. He actually notes on these disputable matters some ways the Bible addresses them. 
But these these things do share two things that make them disputable matters. One is that they are not essential to be a Christian or to function together as a church. We do not need to decide, right, on those things in order to determine whether someone's a Christian. And second, that both sides in those debates are trying to serve Jesus. They're both doing what they're doing for Christian reasons. So that's what we're talking about, disputable matters, matters of conscience. And with that in our heads... Let's see what this text says about dealing with those issues as the church. I'm going to suggest Paul gives us three principles that we have to hold all at once when we deal with those disputable matters. The first principle, he says, is don't pass judgment. Don't pass judgment. So, for instance, in verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. God is our master, Paul says, so who are we to pass judgment? Jesus famously says something similar, right? You pro- judge not lest you be judged, which I'm sure you have heard and said before. That is a very well-known statement, but we do need to clarify it a little bit. Because don't judge me is such a popular refrain in our world, right? It is what teenagers say about their fashion choices, and it is what inmates say about the law so we need to ask like okay so what does that mean well first when paul says that we're not to judge he doesn't mean that we don't judge sinful things as sinful god's word does declare certain things clearly as sin and we're not passing judgment on people simply by saying what the bible says especially in the context of the church in paul's first letter to the corinthians he discusses this case in their church Um, where they have um, this member in good standing who is in a relationship with his mother, let's say. And Paul tells them, look, it's true that I say don't be judgmental, but this is not what I'm talking about. Um, Here's how he puts it in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, sure, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but expel the wicked person from among you. And going too far into that text would be a whole other sermon. But the point is that there are moral realities that we as Christians are to believe. And there's a sort of judgment about those that we're actually called to have. So, like, I've I've seen pastors, right, who who end up in crazy beliefs or, like, public scandalous sin. And they're like, well, you just shouldn't judge me, right? But the answer there is like, no, like, those are the kinds of situations Scripture does call us, in a sense, to judge. So not judging isn't talking about saying that sin is sin when god's word clearly addresses it and not passing judgment is also not the same thing as not having opinions i think sometimes we start with that idea that we shouldn't judge and move to this idea that we shouldn't think about those debatable matters at all but look at verse five again paul says one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike each one should be fully convinced in his own mind That last part is a command. We should actually seek to be convinced of those debatable matters. There's this thing that happens when you see those three circles that I put up earlier sometimes. We say the the center circle is all that matters to make someone a Christian. And then people, I think, sometimes draw from that. Sweet, let's just forget everything else. But that doesn't follow. The Bible does address things in all of those circles. And we're called to think carefully about things in all of those circles. There's a difference between being gracious and non-judgmental and being thoughtless 
and unreflective. We should think through those things. But that said, with those caveats in place, we are called not to judge. So what does that mean? Paul expands the command later in our passage. He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. There are two ways there that Paul challenges our tendency to be judgmental. First, he's reminding us that other people are not ultimately accountable to us, but to God. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. And that means that we don't have to get things figured out for all the people around us. That in the end, God will sort us out. I think part of why we bicker and judge in this world is because we give issues a sense of inappropriate urgency. We feel like it is our job to fix everything for everybody. And that can come from a sort of good impulse, but it can become really destructive when we let it rule us. It leads us to tyranny. We try to force everybody to do what we think they should be doing. And God's judgment reminds us that it is not our job to make those sorts of calls for other people. That we do what we can with our lives, but that we are not the ones who are the masters of the world. We speak truth and show love and let God figure things out in the end. There's a deeper level to that passage, too. Paul isn't just reminding us that other people will have to stand before God's judgment seat. He's also reminding us that we will have to stand before God's judgment seat. That's the application of verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We are often a lot more confident in our opinions about disputable matters than we probably should be. Yeah, I mean, we do need to develop convictions, but we also have to remember that we are imperfect and limited beings. I do not have things as figured out as I like to think, and I am going to have to stand before God someday, and I am sure that the Lord on any number of issues is going to say, you really got that wrong. (laughs) And in that moment, standing before God's judgment seat, I'm going to have to rely on God's grace to get me through that. That I'm going to have to trust in him to forgive and cover over the ways that I was wrong. And that means that I have to show that same grace to the people that I disagree with. To judge people harshly means that I have not appreciated the fact that I need to be judged graciously if I'm going to stand. That's what Jesus is actually getting at when he says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. That um, we should not judge in a way that is harsh or graceless we might find that we end up being judged by that same measure. If I could boil all of that down to a simple application for us, it is that I think not judging means we should be gracious and good-natured as we disagree. We should be gracious and good-natured. I remember um, as a kid, as a teenager, going with my grandfather to this diner in the little town that he lived. He was a farmer, and he was semi-retired by this point. And this diner, which I think they just liked because it had like 25-cent coffee and free refills. But, um, but all morning, you would go there, and all these semi-retired farmers would sit around and drink coffee. And what they did with each other is argue. <laughs> they would argue about everything. They would argue about farming and politics and everything else under the sun. And there were real disagreements between them about what people should do and how people should live. But somehow they always had those arguments with a smile on their face. And the reason 
in part was that they genuinely liked each other, but the deeper reason, I think, was that they had a sense of humor and humility about their views. You can't be a farmer your whole life, I don't think, and not realize that there are things that are beyond your control or understanding. And disagreements in the church should look more like that. That is what not judging at root means, that we don't let our disagreements be bitter and divisive, but things that we can discuss with good humor and humility with each other. The more we do that, we keep Jesus as the central thing, and the more that we do that, we grow in our understanding of debatable matters. So that's the first principle, don't pass judgment. The second one that Paul gives is don't cause others to stumble. Don't cause others to stumble. Start with verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass a judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So don't pass a judgment, he says, and don't put a hindrance in the way of a fellow Christian. Don't put something in their way that would cause them to trip and fall, which is what a stumbling block means. And he explains what he means then in verse 15. He says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So he's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols, remember? And his concern is that even though he says we have freedom on that matter, we should still seek to walk in love. We shouldn't use our freedom or convictions in a way that hurts other people. We aren't serving Jesus if we're hurting the people he died for. So how are we hurting them? Like we said, Paul deals with this same issue in 1 Corinthians, and there he pictures a specific scenario as an example. He says, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, and realize this is like a center of public life, right, that this, these people are being isolated from, but they see that, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols too? So you think it's fine, but this brother or sister doesn't, and if you exercise your conviction in a way that causes them to do it anyway, that's a problem. And the reason that's a problem, Paul says, is that if we do something we think is sin, it is sin for us. That is what Paul seems to be saying in verse 23. He says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is a strange idea, maybe, if you haven't thought of it. But here's the idea. We um, each have these convictions on debatable matters, and some of us are wrong about those convictions. But even if we're wrong, they are still our convictions. We believe them, and so if we violate them, for us, we are still sinning. Now, that doesn't mean that we might not change our convictions, just to be clear. There's absolutely space for people to change their minds, but there's a difference between changing our mind and being pressured or caving in and doing something that we feel is wrong. Let me try to use an example of that, right? Let's say that you are a Christian who feels that it is morally wrong to watch an R-rated movie. Um, that is not my conviction, but I have known some Christians who that's their conviction, right, in their life. Um, and let's say that another Christian invites you to go to a movie, and you think that you shouldn't watch it, and you have—and and you don't have a long conversation, right, where they discuss it with you, and maybe you end up deciding that your conviction is wrong. But what they do is they just pressure you into it, right? Come on! You don't want to miss out. Everybody's going. Don't worry about it, they say. Um, what Paul's saying is that if you were that person whose conscience said that that was wrong— 
um, and you did that and caved into that, that um, you would be sinning. Even though that thing might well not be sinful, because if we think it's sin, we're violating our conscience. And for that other Christian to pressure you into doing it, that is also sinful. And what Paul's saying in this text is don't be that other Christian. The reason is important, too. What Paul is stressing is that we do this because whatever we think about debatable issues, what matters more is whether we are loving and building up our fellow believers. So verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Where are your priorities, Paul is saying, in, in you know, eating meat or in doing what builds up peace and joy? Um, and then verse 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I think we often approach life in terms of our rights. I have a right to do this, we say. And we might, and we'll talk a little more about rights in a minute, but what Paul's saying here is that rights are not as fundamental as love. We are called to love and serve each other, and that will often involve sacrificing our rights. I think that is a very important statement in our world and in America, right? That our rights are not as fundamental as love. So like in our country, we have a right to free speech. And that is good. That's a legal right that I'm all for us having. But I often people, hear people say things that are hurtful or offensive or cruel. And then they say, hey, I have a right to say it when people try to get on their case. And the answer is like, yes, you have a right to say it. But that is not the point. Because our rights are not as fundamental as our call to love. There are all sorts of things that, sure, I shouldn't be forced not to do, but that I still shouldn't do. <laughs> because the question of, do I have a right, is not the ultimate question. The questions Paul says is, is this loving? Is it righteous? Does it build someone up? So we shouldn't cause others to stumble. And we might have questions about how that works in practice, but before we talk about them, I want to discuss the third principle because I think that the second and third principles belong in tension as we think through these things. And that principle is don't let yourself be bound. Don't let yourself be bound. And this one is a little bit subtler in our text. But um, here's why I say it from this text. In this letter, Paul is writing in a way that challenges the people who are more free in their faith. I don't know if you, you notice that in how he talks. The, the stronger brothers that he's challenging are generally the people who are more free and permissive. And Paul actually says that generally they're right, but he still says that there is a problem. Um, but all through that rebuke, he does this interesting thing, because while he's challenging those people who are more free, he also includes all of these little almost like jabs at the, the weaker brothers, right? Which, I mean, he's calling them weaker brothers in the first place, which is not the kind of thing that you want to be called. Um, and he repeatedly stresses that while he is calling the stronger brothers to give up their rights in love, he also is stressing that they're not wrong, in a sense, about their rights. So like in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Or verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God, Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Why is Paul making all those challenges to the weaker brothers, even though it's the stronger brothers that he's rebuking? The answer, I think, is that there is a specific issue in Rome that Paul is addressing, but it is not the only issue that we can have in the church. In Rome, the majority of the church 
The people in power are those freer Christians, the ones that Paul pictures as the stronger brother. Um, and, and so while Paul agrees with them in a sense, because they have that position of power, he is especially pushing back against them because they have an enormous power to harm the weaker brothers. But sometimes it's the other side in power. That's what happens in the church in Galatia. There it's the people with these very specific convictions about what foods you should eat and what holy days you need to celebrate who are running the church, and they're using that power to actually like to, to kind of beat down and force other Christians to do that and tell them they're not Christians if they don't. And to that church, um, Paul talks differently. There he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't let yourselves be bound. Now even in Galatians, Paul stresses that we are to give up our rights in love. Uh, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. But he also says remarkably strong things about letting yourself be kind of forced into um, doing what these other Christians want you to do. For example, in, he, he says, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, which is another one of the cultural debates that they're having, the people in power in the church are saying that all Christians have to be circumcised because of the background of Judaism. But he says, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. In fact, talking about that particular debatable issue of circumcision, here's what Paul says about the people in power in the church. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves, right? It is a whole different tone that he strikes in Galatians than he is in Romans. And the reason is because he recognizes there's two mistakes we can make. The church needs to be a place that welcomes all kinds of people, even those that seem to other people weaker or less mature in their faith, and it should be able to welcome people with all different convictions, and Paul wants the church to love those people in such a way that it protects those, them and doesn't um, cause them to do things that they think are sinful. But he also doesn't want what he's calling the weaker brothers and sisters to define the church or force everyone else to follow their convictions. He ultimately wants them to become stronger. And so that means that there is both a time for giving up our rights in love and a time for asserting our rights. And if that seems hard to parse, it is. But one of the best tests I think that we have is to ask where the power lies. If we are the ones with power, right? If we are the Christians who have power in the church, we should always be using it to serve others. Power is meant to be laid down. But when the power is in the hands of another person, we do have a right to stand up for ourselves and not be bound by their convictions. One of the biggest places I see that is in certain churches that like to make rules on all those issues of conscience, right? Have you ever encountered those churches where, you know, there's a certain length of dress and a certain, you know, certain exacting details of everything that people have to do? In those situations, I think Paul would actually call Christians to push back against that kind of control because it's wrong and destructive. But, again, that doesn't overturn the first thing we said, that we should not cause brothers and sisters to stumble. Does that feel hard to parse to you? I think that's because it is, right? When we, you take those three principles together, it is not giving us a clear-cut rule that will tell us exactly what to do in every situation, but it is giving us a set of principles that we need to 
keep all three of in mind as we seek to live in those disputable matters. Um, and as we talk about how to apply that then, this is where I just have to acknowledge something. Um, so I sat down to write this sermon, and I tried to then say, well, let's talk about that tension practically and frame it in terms of some make-believe hypothetical, like that cr I believe Christians should only drive Hondas or never eat chocolate, right? And I wanted to do that because I'm like, man, if I dig into any real-life example, <laughs> because it's a debatable matter, right? <laughs> I know that it's going to be controversial. Um, so I tried to do that, but um, it just didn't work, right? It doesn't really offer practical help and just sounds silly. So I feel like the best way to apply this is to pick an actual disputable issue in the church and try to talk through, um, talk through it. But before we do that, I'm going to say two things about that, right? First, what we're about to discuss is a disputable issue, and I am about to take a position on it. Um, because the only way to discuss it, right, is to say this is my convictions and why and this is how I'm trying to live it out. Does that make sense to you guys? But it's disputable, so, uh, you know, so my opinion does not come with a thus says the Lord. Does that make sense? Like, I want to acknowledge that we might well differ about those convictions, and I am not here to bind your conscience, right? We should each be convinced in our own mind of what we think. And in addition, the only way I know to discuss it is by um, also discussing how I've you know, how I've reached the conclusions that I have about how to live it out. And I might be wrong there, too, right? Because these three principles aren't always clear. So I might, you might even agree with me on my convictions, but disagree with me on my conclusions. With that said, because I do not want to, to force, you know, my views in that same way on you on disputable issues, um, we're going to talk about drinking. And I'm going to do that for two reasons. One is because it's pretty close to this text. I feel like a lot of the disputable matters that I thought about doing involve a lot of cultural stuff that we'd have to bring in or run dangerously close to something like politics. Um, Paul might even have drinking in mind in verse 21, where he offhandedly mentions drinking wine alongside eating meat, even though that doesn't come up anywhere else in the passage. And two, because I've had a couple of just different conversations with people in the last couple weeks about that topic. And so I thought, well, I guess that fits. And so first, talking about that issue, before anything else, there's an important clarification that we have to say, which is that um, alcohol is kind of a tricky topic to discuss um, because of alcoholism, and that is something different than, we're going, than what we're talking about with it being a disputable matter, right? If you are an alcoholic, if you have an addiction because of um, past habits or how you're wired, then you should not drink, not for some disputable theological reason, but just out of wisdom because you, you know, probably won't be able to handle it. And so we're not discussing that. And also, because I know we have young people always with us, um, we are not discussing drinking for you, just to be clear, if you're underage, right? The Bible calls us to obey um, the, the government and its laws, and so it's not a disputable matter for you either, all right? <laughs> just to be clear on that. But that said, um, here's my understanding, first of all, of alcohol in Scripture. The Bible condemns drunkenness. I don't think that is open for dispute. It's pretty consistently viewed as sin. And we talked about that actually back um, when we did that Seven Deadly Sins series on gluttony. If you want to look that up online, you can go back and listen. Um, but that said, I think drinking in moderation is fine and permitted for Christians. The psalmist in Psalm 104 gives thanks to God for wine that gladdens the hearts of men. Jesus makes like 120 gallons of wine for a wedding feast in Cana. And there are Christians who disagree with that view. 
um, for a number of reasons, and I'm not going to go over the other side because it's not fair to them, right? You know, I mean, whenever you try to represent your side and the side you disagree with, you always make your side look better. So I'm not going to do that. But they are, for biblical and moral reasons, they think that no Christians should drink. Not just that they choose not to personally. That's a separate thing, right? But they, they do not think that Christians should ever drink. Um, and um, that is a disputable matter, right? Like, I mean, there are differences of opinion. Um, so living with that disputable matter, let's talk about Paul's three principles, right? How do we live that out? And the best way, again, to do that is for me to just try to explain, this is how I've tried to sort it out in my life, still acknowledging that I could be wrong. First of all, um, the first principle is don't be judgmental. That's the baseline for everything. And so for me, that means that I want to give freedom to people to hold their convictions, regardless of what those convictions are, and to appreciate and respect them in those convictions, right? To, to say, you think this, and I think this, and I want to honor and respect and dignify you, to not treat you or roll, not roll my eyes at you, right? Not be like, or something like that. It's someone else's opinion. And one side note there, um, Paul in this text uses the language of weaker brother and stronger brother, and he can do that because he's the Apostle Paul, right? <laughs> but I would, I would suggest not, part of being judgmental means it's probably dangerous for us to slip into that language. Because th the issue is, I obviously think that I'm the stronger brother, right, <laughs> on this issue. But I, I'm also sure that someone who disagrees with my convictions thinks I'm the weaker brother. So generally speaking, we should just not think in those categories, right, when we're dealing with each other. So the second principle, then, is don't cause others to stumble. Um, so I have this conviction, um, and, you know, that, that alcohol and drinking in moderation is permissible for Christians, but I want to do that in a way that doesn't cause others to do something that they would think is wrong. Now, before we talk about how I do try to put that into practice in my life, um, like we said, there's a judgment call about that, and so there are some people that I know that share my conviction about drinking, but still think that they should avoid any situation where they would ever let anyone see them drink or acknowledge that they're okay with it. Um, they kind of hide it when company comes over and would never have a drink out to eat or something in case they bumped into somebody that they knew. Um, and I don't want you to violate your conscience, but that's not my conviction um, in the first place because I think that that way of thinking uh, ends up making us hide, um, and that doesn't feel like the transparency that Christ inspires. But also because I feel like that kind of then airs into that don't let yourself be bound territory. There are churches um, that I have encountered where the great majority of people drink, but nobody will ever do it in public or acknowledge that it's the case, right? I mean, I remember growing up in a church like that where the joke used to be that the members of that church, you knew them because they all pretended like they didn't know each other at the liquor store. And that just did not seem like an appropriate way to me to live. However, we are called not to cause each other to stumble. So here's what I do think that means in the way I've worked it out. It means, first, that it is always wrong to pressure somebody to, to have a drink or to, to drink if you don't, well, frankly, ever to pressure them, right? Um, that, that if they think it is wrong, we need to respect that, um, not give them a hard time about it, not seem like we think that's silly. Maybe have a conversation about our different convictions, but never pressure um, and let me stress that, all right? Like, yes, it is fine for us to discuss that we have different convictions, but even though I think that having a beer is fine, it would be sin for somebody to have it if they don't feel that it's fine. And it would be sin for me to try to get them to, in, right, if they haven't changed their conscience. 
Um, not causing someone to stumble then also means that I generally avoid drinking in situations where I might cause someone to feel pressured, even if it's unintentional. So, um, so like, if I'm going out to dinner, you know, if Elizabeth and I are going out to dinner with another couple and we don't know where their convictions are, right, generally I'll refrain from that. Um, and, um, you know, if I'm hanging out with somebody, right, I wouldn't, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have a drink unless, <laughs> unless I know clearly that I'm in a context where it's not going to make them feel pressured to do it. And then last, like we've already kind of hinted at, though, because I don't think we should live in bondage, um, I admit my convictions, and I'm happy to discuss them with people, and don't, like, hide the glass if I take a photo with Elizabeth and put it up on Facebook, right? And don't, you know, like, try to put on a hoodie and disguise myself if I'm going, you know, I mean, out somewhere like that. Um, that's how I've worked it out in my life. And let me say what, we, what I said a minute ago, right? Which is that I might be wrong about either part of that. <laughs> I might be wrong about my conviction, and I want to acknowledge and honor that Christians have different convictions, and I might be wrong about how I've worked it out in my own life. I don't walk through that to try to say, this is what you should all think. But I walk through that to try to say, this is how those principles are meant to work. Does that make sense? Like, they give us that set of categories that we can think on, and if I'm wrong, it's because I'm getting that balance of those principles wrong. And we can have a discussion about that, right? We can work through that in our mind. So that's what Paul says about disputable matters. Here's what I hope that provides then as we close. Moving away from that particular issue and moving away from kind of just that, there's three things I think all of this together should do for us. First, I think that it should encourage us to show mindfulness in our actions. Mindfulness in our actions. Underlying everything that we just talked about is the idea that we are being thoughtful and intentional about our convictions and about how we live out those convictions, right? I think we can stress because we're like, oh man, how do I, how do I maintain this balance of these different things? And that can be hard, but the far greater problem is that most of us just don't try to live out that balance, right? We just don't reflect on those things at all. Um, and so being mindful is a good calling. Second, I hope that it reminds us that we should have humility in our convictions, that we should have humility in how we treat each other. We need to put people first, not our rights, and that we need to have humility in how we hold the convictions themselves. The further we get out in that, those circles, the less certain we should be, because the more we have to acknowledge that there are people who love Jesus and disagree with us. And then most of all, I hope that as we do that with disputable matters, it reminds us of the supremacy of Christ. One of the problems in churches, I think, is that when we don't do these things that we talked about, we end up taking those disputable matters and putting them in the center circle. And that inevitably ends up pushing Jesus outward. The more that we pick some matter of conscience and say, this is the thing we're about, this is the thing we gather around, this is the flag that we wave, the less attention we pay Jesus. Foundational to Paul's discussion here is the reality that we can live with our differences only by keeping Jesus at the center. I can look at brothers and sisters and, who have radically different opinions about me, about all kinds of things, about, about parenting, about culture, about politics, about life. I can look at them and say, you are my brother. You are my sister 
because it is Jesus that is uniting us, and that provides a bond that is far more important than those debatable matters. So that's our calling, to be people who keep that first thing first, keep Jesus first, because as we do that, our differences no longer divide us. Would you pray with me? Father, I give you thanks for your word, even as I acknowledge, um, yeah, the uncertainty I feel in moments like this of my own imperfection in how I apply it. And I pray that you would be correcting me and correcting each of us. Teach us to grow more and more to be like Jesus and to grow closer to each other, even as we, um, even as we have these differences. I pray these things in Jesus' name.